0: You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. And welcome, everyone. You're tuned in to Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock, and I bring the show to you the first Monday of every month here on KWMR a show where we dive into the blue part of our planet, the ocean. We talk with scientists, policymakers, explorers, all sorts of different folks all tuned into talking about the vital part of the ocean in our daily lives. So it's October, and in this region, we call this area, this time of year, Sharktober because it's the annual return of the white sharks that have been out at sea in different parts of the ocean and they come back to the coast here in the Point Reyes area between the Farallon Islands and Point Reyes all the way down to Año Nuevo and there's a focused effort of research on them. But there's also more than that and today we're going to play, I'm going to play, an interview I did just about a week and a half ago with two local shark enthusiasts, uh, local Point Reyes and Inverness residents, Ron Elliott and Scott Anderson. And both of them have unique access and understanding of this local predator, the white shark. And so you will hear a conversation with Scott and Ron today on Ocean Currents. So thanks for tuning in and stay with us. I'm here on a beautiful fall day here in Point Reyes Station talking with Ron Elliott, a former urchin diver, longtime ocean lover and generator of local lore, particularly in regards to diving with white sharks. And Scott Anderson, a local shark researcher who has been studying the local white shark population between the Farallon Islands and Point Reyes in California for over 20 years. So Scott, this time of year is particularly exciting for you because what happens this time of year?
1: Well, this is when the sharks start returning to the areas that we frequently go out to look for them. So this is when they start coming back. So we're excited to see who's coming back and how many there are and all that.
0: So where are they coming back from?
1: Um, Most of them, the larger sharks, go out to this place we call the cafe. And the cafe is an area that's between uh, the Hawaiian Islands and the tip of Baja. And it's huge, it's bigger than the state of Texas, but that's where um, most of the sharks go. This They've been during the winter time. Uh, Some of the sharks go through the Hawaiian chain to the other side, and that place we don't have a name for. (laughs) We don't call it the cafe.
0: How did you and Ron meet?
1: I don't really remember the first time we met, but I watched Ron go diving at the Farallones for years <laughs> before we met, so I sort of already knew him, and uh, I could tell he was a careful diver, and um, yeah, he used to go diving right where I was looking for the sharks, so I was up on the lighthouse looking down, and I don't know if he ever looked up, but um, it was pretty easy to watch him.
2: <laughs> I did. I looked up. <laughs> well, Scott, I remember uh, uh, some of the people that I knew that worked for the park knew Scott, and so they said, oh, he's got some amazing footage and that, you know, and I said, oh, I bet he does. And so finally, uh, there was a bunch of times when they were out running around in the uh in the little whaler, uh, you know, we wave at each other. And then finally, one day we just started kind of talking and saying, hey, how's it going? You know, did you see anything? Yeah, I did. You know, and then, and it just kind of started from there. You know, it was, just, it, was uh, it was bound to happen.
0: What drew you to Point Reyes, Ron?
2: Well, uh, I was diving urchins down in Southern California, and so I was based out of uh, Santa Barbara. And uh, even though we still lived down in Santa Monica, but I commuted. I always commuted when I was diving urchins. It was always somewhere else is where I worked. And um, eventually the north coast, uh, there was a lot of interest in the urchin uh, business back then. There was uh, some a few er, years earlier there was guys that were like up in Fort Bragg, Point Arena area uh, developing the fishery and so uh, it was kind of like virgin stock so these guys were harvesting a lot. It was it was like uh, for me to come up here was like an adventure to change what I've been doing for a number of years in Southern California so I came up uh, and tested the waters. Uh, There was about, so it was in the early 80's that I I knew uh, one of the local guys that came from Venice originally. and We were visiting him for a few years before I actually moved here. So we kind of knew the area. We got introduced to a lot of people. So we didn't move in here cold, not knowing somebody. We got to know a lot of the ranchers and different people, fishermen and stuff. So that was kind of nice. So when our daughter graduated high school and our son was already out of high school, we said, you can keep the house and figure out what you want to do for the next year. We're leaving. And so we bailed up and came up to Point Reyes. And, uh, and then I tried to base my, you know, my diving operation out of Bodega Bay area. And, um, so it was a great getaway.
0: So there was a buyer in Bodega Bay?
2: Yeah, back then there was a couple buyers in Bodega Bay, um, and uh, so back then, at the beginning of the 80s, uh, the Japanese market was real strong. Their yen was very, uh, not, uh, the dollar against the yen was very strong. Um, and uh, back then it was like $240, uh, 240 yen to the dollar. Now it's like maybe 80 <laughs> to the dollar for 85. But back then it was a real strong market, so we didn't have to worry about how much we sent over to Japan. They would take a lot of the volume, almost all the volume that we could uh, send over. And so this was the place to be. Um, and it was great for a while, and then their economy fell apart, and then things started tapering down. And, and same with the processors. We had processors right there in the harbor, and we had some that would go all the way to Fort Bragg or out to Sacramento, and eventually they all disappeared. And uh, then trucking became a big issue, and so then that's kind of how my uh, urchin diving uh, career kind of came to an end. I didn't want to travel again, mm-hmm. you know, back to Southern California and all that. So uh, that's kind of how, when it tapered off, that was fine with me. I had enough of traveling and sleeping on a sleeping bag in the boat.
0: Yeah, when well, what year was that about? Uh,
2: 2004 was the oh, wow. uh, was the end of when I stopped diving for urchins. For urchins. Mm-hmm.
0: And the urchin fishery was kind of ending or changing, and you decided to take a break, but you you stayed in the water ever since then. Are you still going to the Fairlands?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was just out there a couple weeks ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, what happened at that time, I had, there was a lot of politics. The, the urchin business was changing. It wasn't, you know, the prices were like, back like when we used like 15 years before that that we used to get and so the um, the polish or the glow of the industry was had tarnished a lot for me and I was looking for a way I didn't know how to uh, like bow out of doing it I was just kind of praying for an answer and so the bad economy of it and um, and I don't like uh, picking a lot of urchins and giving them away for nothing. it just didn't seem to make sense um, and it was frustrating so uh eventually, what happened was there was a time that uh when there was a, a film being done, uh, one guy approached me about doing a little short film, and then there was this gal named not to be mentioned, was writing a book. And um, so it was kind of like the perfect storm. Uh, all these things came together. And, uh, but the one guy that was writing, doing this little short film, uh, Devil's Teeth, wanted me to take some underwater footage with this uh, camera I had. And so I went down and I got a couple shark shots and some, some sunfish under the water and different things like that. And that was kind of fun. I enjoyed that. And uh, we had grandkids at the time, and they were real young. And that kind of baited me. I enjoyed that. And then, really, six months or seven months later, I stopped diving altogether, and I just kept carrying a camera because I enjoyed kind of documenting what I had been experiencing for, like, uh, from 89 to 2004 that I wasn't filming. And so um, I just wanted to kind of keep doing it. I, I just found something I had a passion for.
0: That's so cool. So <clears throat> you've had a lot of experiences seeing sharks underwater. Most people, the fear of the the shark keeps them out of the water completely, but what is, how come you don't have that?
2: Uh, You know, I mean, I get nervous and, you know, there's plenty of times that, you know, it'll rattle, you know, you, you it's not something that's predictable. I have no control, so I could like that. I don't like controlled settings and I like to kind of experience nature the way it is. Um, so that part is kind of thrilling or it, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. Why I keep going back, I, you know, and it's not always about the sharks. There's a lot of little cool critters all over the bottom and you know, and then occasionally, you know, you get to see a whale underwater. Uh, just like seeing the the mola mola or the sunfish or or some of the all the different jellies, I never used to pay attention to that stuff when I was making money. It was all about making money, and I appreciated the environment, but I didn't pay attention to it like I do now and so there's always something yeah that it can be the smallest little interaction uh, you know a little critter down there, but i I enjoy it you know it's it, that hasn't worn off
0: so you were looking at everything when you're down there, not just Mm -hmm. the sharks. Mm -hmm. So what about, you've had some, I've heard you talk a little bit about some of your experiences underwater. Has there been a time underwater where you felt a little out of control with uh, a shark approaching you or getting closer? I mean, what does it feel like?
2: Well, yeah, I I never felt in control. Um, That's the whole illusion. If you feel like you're in control, uh, you're gonna be taught a different lesson. it's just that most of the time that i've had interactions with sharks there nothing happens they're just it's curiosity it's it's you know it's no big deal there's the few times that register in your mind when they don't fit that mold you know and they can get aggressive and you know it's probably more uh, a couple times you know Being near the surface or just breaking the surface and swimming down, you know, uh, that I did experience ones that really looked like they were on a full attack, and then you know they break off at the last minute because you don't back down and you kind of they
0: said, "Hey, that's Ron. We're going to leave him alone."
2: I wish wish that's what they thought, (laughs) but you know, right up to that last couple (coughs) feet, you know, I was wondering myself. uh, But as the years went on and they got a little more used to people and decoys and. And uh, then the uh, cage boats were around. A lot of that stuff kind of disappeared. You know, what, they became used to it. They learned from it. And so I don't have those kind of experiences very often anymore. Um, they still come close. Uh, the other day I had one kind of bump me again. Um uh what do you no, do was mean too by, sharp.
0: What do you mean by bump? <laughs> well, I had one shark. I was
2: filming it and it turned and right then then this other one came by and, and knocked me from behind and that was the that day that I injured myself on the a boat I fell after that dive I fell on the boat maybe I was too excited I don't know wow. but um but it's rare so and I never feel in control because they come behind you or whatever and you have no idea
1: you just have no idea. But one thing i just like to say is, is Ron, Ron's a really good diver and very competent, and because he's been there before, he has a certain kind of ability that um, the sharks, I'm sure, pick up on that as well. <clears throat> and so the average person may not be able to get away with it. But, um, you know, to me it's sort of proof that if a person acts a certain way, they can, you know, dive where there's white sharks and not be eaten. And I think most people think that wouldn't happen. But if the person knows what they're doing and they're qualified like Ron is, then... You know, I mean, it's surprising Ron hasn't been bitten yet, but, um, you know, hopefully he won't be.
0: Do you think part of that is just looking like you're fairly predictable underwater as opposed to being more swimmy and He's flailing a little bit? He's competent and knows
1: where he is. Like, uh, Well, the, the only time you really are, I think, worried is when you, your hose disconnects or you're forced to come to the surface when you're not ready to. I don't know, but something like that can be, you know, disappointing, right? <laughs>
0: Now, how many times are you both in the water, like, in the same vicinity?
1: We see each other on a daily basis when the weather's good out there. Um, our season out there is just the month of October, though, so Ron continues to go after that. But um,
0: So how do you decide on your locations for looking for sharks? And you guys are tagging or photo ID? Yeah, we're,
1: we're doing all that. We, you know, hope to get a photo-ID record of them and then tag them. Um, uh, but, yeah, so there's maybe four or five spots around the island. And um, we probably go to the same two usually in the beginning and then move out from there. Um, so we have a hydrophone that listens for the sharks, the ones with tags on, we can hear. So if we know there's one in the area, usually there's more. So we'll stay in those areas. And then we'll tell Ron they're over here and then he comes <laughs> over.
2: So <laughs> you follow around?
1: <laughs> follow each other. He sometimes sees them when we don't. So...
2: If they tell me they're there, it's hard to not go
0: over there. <laughs> oh my gosh! Vice versa, yeah. So how about? I mean, I'm curious. If, when, maybe when you're on the islands, have you ever seen an attack or something happen and Ron be nearby and he was underwater or something and wonder? Hmm. I mean.
1: <clears throat> yeah. Well. So the the best example I can give you is back when I was first on the island, I was working for a biologist named Phil Henderson, and and Phil was always worried about sharks and divers and we just, because he'd been there years ago when a diver on the North Fairlands had been bitten by a shark and it was a big problem and he had to be airlifted out. So anyway, Phil was always worried. So every day he'd come up to me and go, do you think we should tell him? Do you think we should tell him? And finally one day, I think it was after about a month, he was like, I don't think we need to tell him. I think he knows. Later on, we did figure out he knew. And, you know, you could tell he knew because we'd seen other divers. I'd seen other divers come out there and stay like a couple days, and then they'd see something, and they were gone after that. And you could tell they saw something. One guy had a bang stick, and he saw a shark, came to the surface, it was swimming on the surface, He hit his flipper hit the bang stick and set it off. Then he got in the boat, and the other diver was still down, and they were starting the motor to try to get the guy's attention. It was just a fiasco, and those guys never came back.
0: You're tuned to Ocean Currents, and you're listening to an, a conversation with Ron Elliott and Scott Anderson talking about white sharks in the region. Ron, what are you hoping to see that you haven't seen yet? What would you like to see?
2: Well, okay, a humpback underwater. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> an I've
0: whale. Gray, I, I I've
2: seen gray whales, but I have not experienced humpback underwater. Uh, not here. Um, but that would be exciting. I mean it's awe-inspiring when you see something like that underwater. Um, And then you know I I don't really put expectations on it. I I like being surprised. Um, And you know there's a lot of days that you go out there and you don't see any sharks and 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 if I had real high expectations oh well I'm not gonna be happy unless I see a shark or something. I'd be really bummed out and right. I'd stop doing it because the sharks have learned to not be so curious. And a lot of them, I think, do know my, you know, the, the, the sound of my boat, you know, rocking there and uh, my bubbles. And they just, I think they know that routine. And so the curiosity factor for, I think, quite a few of them are they're, they're there, they're on their periphery, but it's not for, they really don't care to be filmed. And, um, and it did change for a long time, me carrying a camera, compared to just urgent diving, where I'm doing something else. And I'm preoccupied, and they would get a lot closer and come by a lot, uh, just wouldn't me, even though they weren't really paying attention to me. And now, I mean, that still can happen, but when you start filming something and you got this big cow eye of a lens looking at them, they know. You know they know when you turn your head and look at them, they know you're looking at them. And this adds another dimension to it. So for a long time, some of the sharks, I think, are just a little more reticent in coming in close where you can get a nice shot of them. So that's changed over the, over the years. So I am a little more devoted to being patient. And, and then I don't know what else I'm going to see. And that's the good part that keeps me going.
0: One thing I've seen, with Scott, with your work is that you certain sharks, you really can you visually know, oh, that's so-and-so. Yeah. I remember there's one shark that has, like, some slit to the gills or something. There's a bunch of them that we know pretty well. Yeah, about. I mean, do you have the same recall with seeing certain sharks return each year from seeing there's, them underwater? the water?
2: There are some that are very noticeable to me. I don't have the same eyes as Scott. Well, now, Scott, Paul, Paul's Scott. got the
1: eyes now. Yeah. I can't even keep up with him.
2: But, from, I mean, so, you know, as I'm not a researcher, so I don't really base all my stuff on identification. I'm just kind of there for the wonderment. Uh, well, you,
1: you look at stuff like whether it's a male or a female now, yeah. and if it has a distinctive fin, you know that. Like the one yeah, that yeah, we hadn't it, tagged for years, that one.
2: If it was missing a leg or something, <laughs> I I'd probably noticed that. Um, no, it's just kind of afterwards when I get my film and I look at it, then I see things. Kind of at the first, it's a little bit more, uh, Just I just take in the whole thing and then I come back later. Because I used to tell Scott when I was just urchin diving, well I, you know I think these were all females. Well there's times that I think I see females and then I get home and I run the video and then I see the claspers, they're tucked up underneath, they're pretty good and I'll get, oh that's a male, I see I got fooled. And so Having the video and looking back, you know, I see that I was misidentifying some sharks. And there were some that had the top dorsal cut off that I thought maybe uh, was another shark until I take a video. And then I tell Scott, "Well, it's this. And then I look back and I go, oh, this one's got claspers or this one doesn't. But yet there's a lot of them that have this top of the dorsal kind of chopped back on an angle. And um, I've gotten fooled by those.
0: What do you think that's from? The top? Oh,
1: it can I mean, be all it's like kinds a couple of things.
0: Inches, right? Not the whole. Well, one, but... it
1: depends on the wound. There's all kinds of different injuries on those, and that's actually one of the papers I hope to work on in the future. Is is um, sort of tracking the scars and marks on the sharks to see what caused them, and all kinds of things. They run into all kinds of different issues. But the main reason I want to do it is to break down the thing about females having mating bites and whether they're fresh or not. Because there's a lot of papers being produced right now questioning the female. Uh, migration and things like that and and their whole reproductive cycle and when uh, somebody documents a shark and says it has mating wounds on it that are fresh and they're months old then that makes a major difference in what they're saying so we want to clean that up and it's going to take a little bit of work but um, we see all kinds of things that you can talk about the sharks that are sort of natural history observations some come in with all their teeth and their gums are clean and they haven't bitten anything in months it looks like and then the other ones are all beat up and you can tell they've been feeding for months so so lots of little details that um, you can get from looking at them in detail so the the main point i want to make here is that the new video cameras and the new uh, digital cameras make all this really possible because like ron was saying when you come back at the end of the day you can figure it out um, in the old days you know you had to wait for film um, the resolution wasn't the same. The, the amount of uh, well, just everything's better, higher resolution. So we yeah. get we get more detailed information than we used to.
0: Do we know where sharks pup? Where do they? Yeah, for-
1: Southern California bite down into Baja. That's where they pup because their little baby ones are seen in July every year down
0: there. I've heard a lot of sightings just through gillnet catches of young. Like it seems like they're young sharks.
1: Yes, uh, well, but the big ones have to go down there to get birth. so right. at some point females go down there and birth sometime in the spring, early summer, and uh, then the little ones grow up feeding on fish and they get to a certain size, they start coming up the coast here, and um, then at some point they end up going out to the cafe and doing that annual migration.
0: Where did the story start? I still hear it today, and I've been discounting it. But where did it start? That Tomales Bay is a breeding ground. Is it because of leopard sharks? <laughs> I don't know the who news? was. The, I don't know who
1: was the first one to say it. But it, that talk about an urban myth that's yeah. uh, international. I mean, I talked to people from England that um, I've heard that, and it's uh, it's basically it can't be based on the fact that there's little baby white sharks in the bay because there aren't. There are large white sharks off the point, of course, at Tomales Point and Point Reyes, and they were uh, caught by fishermen off the point. And a few little ones were caught in the bay, and that could be where it is. And the bay is full of small sharks, little uh, gray smooth hounds, brown smooth hounds, leopard sharks, you name it. Um, so that could be it, but it's... A, its
0: There are some sharks that do breed in Tamales Bay, but uh, they're, they're harmless. Yeah. Fairly. Leopard
1: sharks, brown smooth hounds, bat rays, angel sharks. There's a bunch of different shark species use the bay. But white sharks specifically rarely come in the bay. They may have back in the day when there was white sea bass in here, but we haven't, I haven't never seen one in the bay, that's for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe out towards more in the mouth. Yeah. Ron, do you ever dive off Tomorrow's Point? Yes. Now, do you dive, like, go to the bottom? Is there, or are you more midwater?
2: Well, okay. So um, most of the time, the water is—it's occasionally it's really clean. I mean, that's occasional.
0: Like blue, like bluish, clearish. Well,
2: that would so be weird. great. So weird, so odd. Very rare. That'd be great. I've seen it in
0: Cordell Bank, really clear, but that's offshore.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd love to be able to dive in that <laughs> all the time. But Tomales is kind of a funny place. It can look okay on top, and then you get down there, and then you start getting all these little particles in the water, and and. Uh, uh, so when you start looking, you can look down in the water, and if you can see the bottom, that's great. But when you get down and you look, anything that's in the water, the f- sun reflects off it, and it changes your horizontal visibility mm-hmm. quite a bit. And so, um, so for filming, occasionally, uh, I usually get down to the bottom, get comfortably get off the bottom, and swim around. Just swim, you know, above the reef, five, six feet, something like that, and. Um, occasionally I'll get up in mid-water, only if you can kind of see the bottom and not get disoriented, because when it's really dirty and you cannot tell, it's like being lost in the fog, you start to not it's know where you are. Yeah, you yeah, don't know
0: if you're up or down. Yes,
2: your, your, your equilibrium and everything gets, and it's not comfortable. And also, probably not safe, yeah. too, because yeah. you're looking around, you're getting a little more, you know, you, you, you don't see so well, so you end up, it's not, you end up checking around you a lot more, and it's just not very comfortable at all. <laughs> yeah. So I, it's disorienting more than anything else. So I just try and judge by the amount of visibility I have. I get up off the bottom to swim. And uh, as far as sharks approaching me, uh, sometimes if I'm just like four or five feet off the bottom, swimming along, they, I think they a lot of times feel more comfortable approaching me then. Sometimes when I'm up in mid-water, swimming around you know I've done that quite a bit and I don't always feel like it works out yeah you know it's like I think oh this should do it well I think but what they do is something totally different so what do they do they just don't something they they just don't even offer themselves to be seen or I might see a shadow but they so it's kind of a catch-22 it's all up to them when they want to
0: so is it typically like a flyby situation where they're just coming around, checking you out, and then move on?
2: Yeah, a lot of times it's in this shadow. You know, I'll, I'll see something right out here. It just stays right out there where you just see this shadow and occasionally see a shadow. Uh, when they do get in close where I can actually see them pretty good, they've already gone by me. And that there it goes. And... Okay, is it coming back or? <laughs> that's when he starts looking. Right yeah, you know, and then it's like okay, you know, you sit, sit there and then you just go okay, did it, it turn to the left and then you kind of kind of rotate and look around, and just wait for the shadow to all of a sudden reappear, you know, and sometimes it does and and a lot of times it doesn't because that, that that's you know that's all I needed to do was just swim by and whether they were checking me out or I was just in the way of their where they were going, I don't know, but.
1: These sharks here in California, or at least off of our coast here, they act differently than what you see in the films, like when they bait sharks in Australia or South Africa. The sharks come up to you know, fish chum, and they swim around the whole time that the boat's there around here you know we we get one or two maybe three passes out of the shark and then they just disappear because they already they've seen us before they've seen ron before and so they really it's the same the the thing it's hard to remember is it's the same animals over and over over we keep seeing the same ones and so they've seen us and they're you know they're they're used to it in a certain way so they're a lot more selective about the decoy when i first went out to the farallons I think you could have put almost anything out there, and they would have, you know, jumped out of the water to attack it. But they've seen so many decoys now, especially since the dive boats are there all day long for the entire fall with the decoy out.
0: You've been listening to Ocean Currents, and with my your host Jennifer Stock, and you've been listening to a conversation with Scott Anderson and Ron Elliott, two West Marin residents that are. Experiencing and learning about white sharks on a firsthand basis this time of year in Sharktober. Territorial behavior with white sharks.
2: Well, that's what I would call it when I sometimes underwater, because it's not a full-on attack or anything like that. They just come up to you. They open. They gape their mouth open, but they don't. Yeah. They don't go like this. It's more of a kind of. I believe it's like because it, they have certain little areas that they like to patrol, and every once in a while you'll get one that uh, kind of gives you a threatening. Um, Motion and, um, and uh, yeah, I would call it like a territorial type thing, definitely.
0: Have you ever been pushed physically? Yeah,
2: yeah. How so? Well, I mean, I've had times where I, you know, like when I was had my urchin basket or something, and I had to put that between me and it, and because they came up with their mouth, and I pushed my basket and <laughs> couple of time I literally had my basket over my head cuz it kind of really thumped me good but other times you know I just push it and you know hit them in the nose or the face there and and then they back off and they just circle around and then just give up but uh uh one time there was a big uh big one that um right day before christmas and uh No, it was Christmas Day, because my wife was out of town, and I didn't have to do anything. (laughs) And it was one of these big females that got really big and fat. And it was one of these days in, in Main Top Bay where the water was, that really, like, just beautiful water. And I was urchin diving, and I was out in deep water, 50, 60 feet, and I was working my way up into shallower water where my boat was. And this big female, about 18 feet, just fat, just obviously pregnant, just really big and you know, pristine looking and didn't have a bunch of scars on it. it was almost like it came out of a mold. It was so pretty. And with that water, it's really stunning. But I, I was getting metered out. So I was working my way across the sand alleyway to get back up into the uh, shallower reef area and get under my boat. And uh, so she came in and I said, well, I got to get going. So I jumped up in the, you know, I kind of jumped up and kind of swam at her and like the Make her kind of detour off, and uh, and she took exception to it, and so she instead of like going on an angle from you know right by me, she just dead turned on me and just like came right at me, and I was like whoa, and I went right to the bottom by my urchin basket and this little razor reef, and I mean she kind of came down and like she was going to squish me with her belly, she just went "Mm," like that, and I was like whoa, that was. Pretty impressive, <laughs> Well, And usually, when a shark would go by me like that, I'd come up behind it, and then they didn't like that. So I, I immediately b- uh, bounced off the bottom and came up behind her, and I never seen a shark turn so fast. And I was back down on the bottom like a pancake, and um, so when she she didn't try biting me, she just like almost like tried give me a belly slam, and you know then her tail whipped real hard and all the little shells and everything started floating up in the water. And I was like totally impressed. I was like, whoa. Oh so, gosh. I mean, you know, you get something like that in your mind and you, you remember those things. Like, I started it. It wasn't, if I had left her alone, she was fine. Right. But I, just my little idea of scaring her away was and so that, that was, you know, she just, uh, that was more like a territorial thing. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that's how I took it.
0: So you learn every every time you go down, you learn a little bit more of how to be there with them.
2: Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, back then it probably wasn't so important really to, like, pay attention too much to them. Uh, just let them be and not like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to work. Because I did learn that a couple of times. Um, and now I don't do that. I when I'm filming, them, I just let them do whatever they want to do. I just try and stay still, have a slow breath, and and let them do what they want to do. Um, and not, you know, I'm not there to scare them away. I'm not there to beg them in, but I mean, if they do come close, that's fine with me.
1: Yeah, we, we don't see a lot of territorial behavior towards our boat or anything because they think we're like a floating carcass or something. So that's kind of what we see, but what Ron was talking about with pointing the camera at them, we used to use larger cameras than what we're using now, and it definitely looks like a big eye, you know, the lens is probably six inches in diameter, and even when you would point it right at at them, at their eye, they would almost always dart away, so they really don't like something staring at them, they're kind of used to coming from the side and stuff like that, so. Yeah. I know, they have a tiny brain, but they're good at what they do, you know, it's hard to relate, I sometimes think, well, what's it like to be a white truck? what's it like down there day after day, and. It's just hard to imagine.
0: I mean, just, They're highly evolved.
1: Yeah. It's
0: good at what they do.
1: Another thing that sort of points to, um, uh, I guess, a little more respect for white sharks is that uh, we've we've known that, you know, they probably live longer than anyone thought because we have one individual now with a 26-year record, and it was 13 feet or 12 feet when it was first seen, so we know they live longer than what the literature originally estimated, which was 15, 16 years. But there's a paper that's going to come out where they actually did some new analysis of the rings and, and um, some other things. And they've the estimate is somewhere between, they can live to be 70 to 90 years. Wow. Which is kind of more in line with what we're are going to
0: be on the water about. a long time. I know Scott. we should have started
1: a long time ago, right, Ron? Just <laughs> getting going here. <laughs>
0: So wheelchairs
1: by now. Yeah. Have
0: you seen any sharks? I mean, you've been doing this for over 20 years. Have you seen any that you that started seeing at the beginning?
1: Yeah, this one uh, we named it Tom Johnson because Tom Johnson, who's a naturalist uh, or was on the well, Salty Lady back in 1987, photographed this shark feeding on a seal off of East Landing, and we've seen that shark. We saw it last year. And uh, it shows up at Tamala sometimes and then moves out to the Farallons, but we've seen it um, on and off for all that time, and it's bigger now. It's probably 15 feet. Um, but the fin has stayed identical to what it was, so it's a really good record. Um, and there's several others that are in the 20s, so I think if we had started with this great video cameras and digital equipment and a boat and a bunch of people out there at the Fairlands back in 1987, we'd we'd know a lot more than we do, but we've been putting in this more concentrated effort now for like the last eight, nine years.
0: You know, it seems like the media obviously is always looking for the sensational story, and... They've given sharks a bad rap with the high media coverage of shark attacks and sometimes loss, and it's it seems so little coverage on the attack on sharks in terms of the gill net or not so much gill nets, but the um, the shark finning and you know what are your thoughts on that? With knowing this population and knowing how beautiful they are, like how do you feel about that, Ron? And how do we change that?
2: Well, um, since we we like to go in the ocean, surfers, divers, uh, swimmers. Um, basically, we're in their element. Uh, we're in their backyard. Mm-hmm. And so when something happens, I would call it an incident. But really, the word attack is like almost like a, somebody who has premeditated mm-hmm. motives to go do harm to somebody. So really, I don't consider them attacks. Mm-hmm. I call them an incident. And because they're so random... And um, especially with white sharks, I think it's really uh, a mistaken identity or a randomness. Maybe like with bull sharks or some of those others, they just are, they just have so much testosterone, they're just going to bite, you know, or mm-hmm. something like that. But with the white sharks, they're very selective of how they, what they attack. And uh, so to me, I would call it more of an incident. And so I think there's a lot of, you know, that attack word is... You know, I, I don't like that word. Yeah. Because you could, uh, if you're in their element, something's going to happen eventually. So I, you know, I I, uh, I kind of feel you know that um, that's just part of it. Uh, that's not a bad thing. It's just more of
0: a co-occurrence.
2: It's just you know you have to accept <laughs> it. If you're out in the water, this and it's and it's so random. You know, it's it's not something you can predict. Uh, and then the other thing is about the sharks is that um, it, like. Like Scott said, these animals are so big, their reproductive cycle, everything, their growth, I mean, so anything that disturbs that kind of, is can be really detrimental, and they are up on the upper ends of the food chain. And, you know, we've seen how, how detrimental that is. Uh, sharks are, and all the species of sharks are very slow on their uh, reproductive cycle. Um, and so, uh, and I, you know, I just, uh, uh, I think there's changes underway, but um, uh, anything that kind of, like you say, uh, brings out, uh, you know, we're lucky to have the resource we have, and the resource is very delicate. Uh, there's so many people and interactions that, um, that the res- you know, uh, there should be a lot of respect for what's out there. And, and we're so blessed to have what we do have and to um, and just to take some certain things for money only and not um 'cause Because when I was urchin diving, I mean, I, I love being out there. I love the, the whole idea. And um, I was making money, uh, but I also convinced myself I wasn't doing any harm now. Uh, maybe you could find some harm in it. But I, was, I, I tried to be selective and, and not be too greedy about what I was doing. But, uh, you yeah, know, that's a conscious thing. You know, everybody comes, you know, now that I'm older, I see things a little more clearly. And uh, yeah, I have a lot of respect for the, uh, what we have now as far as resource and protecting.
0: Have you seen a change in the Gulf of the Farallones, just in terms of the habitats over the 20, 30 years you've been in the water here?
2: well i uh um there has been some regulations uh when I used to dive out there in the early days. there was some long liners and people like that out there. There wasn't as many sport fishing boats um, you know the commercial guys would fish outside uh, but the draggers used to get close and that you know and not that I'm saying anything, but I think since some of these regulations have gone into place, and there's some boundaries, and no take around the island, uh, then it kind of gets, it, it pushes a lot of that traffic, because it's a small little area, mm-hmm. and it's a great, you know, it's very um, it's very productive, very vibrant area, you know, with the upwelling and everything, it's, it's a great little area, uh, and, but it's small, and it can be really hammered, so I think by backing off some of the fishing and the no-take zones, and um, you know, is very important. You know, it, it took a long time, but uh, I think that's a big help.
0: Have you seen changes in the phys- underwater just physically with your eyes? Any changes? Um,
2: well, the the one things that I, I noticed was over the years um, that there was a, a lot of um, uh, bottom fish, the, the, uh, the red snapper, the ling cod and, and uh, all the blue rockfish and black rockfish and um, so it used to be I don't see as many and I'm not out there quite as much as I used to be, but I don't see as many of the big giant uh, uh, large ling cods and things. I see them, but I don't see them to the same extent. Uh, for a while there when the, the the shark thing got real popular and there was all kinds of boats coming in um, and fishing wasn't very good. For other things, there was like uh, maybe on one day you could see a hundred uh, sport fishing boats around that island. Wow. And I mean, I had them drift into me while I'm sitting there at anchor. Um, There's so many and uh, they really targeted the shallow water for all these rockfish. And... Um, and I did see a big difference, less rockfish down there, or especially the big, mature ones. Yeah. And, um, and I also noticed that uh, the pregnant, like uh, the ones that were the lingcod that had the big bellies of eggs, some of those fishing seasons don't coordinate with their actual spawning when they're laying eggs. And uh, so I think now that there's been a little time, not a whole lot, you know, so it'd be interesting over the next few years to see how it changes around the island in shallow, where I see those females more with the eggs. Because you'll go in the rock piles and see these big bands of blocks of eggs. And um, so I'm interested to see how that is, because Tomales is a great place where you see a lot of lingcod in shallow back in the rocks where they have their eggs. Mm -hmm. And um, so those are the kind of things I see. So I I just... um, I'm hoping to see that kind of change now, yeah, since the pressure has really been relieved around there.
0: We just have a few minutes left, and you know, I'm curious you've mentioned you have grandchildren and you have this great respect for this ecosystem. and what are your messages for for them for becoming the next generation to become caretakers of this ecosystem?
2: Uh, a lot of my family members aren't ocean people. They start throwing up as soon as they get out there, you know. <laughs> I mean, Carol is good, uh, but uh, the kids, my daughter and son, they they just couldn't do it, you know. So they're not um, so in tune, but our, our granddaughter, Taylor and Jackson, they're, they're very good on the water, and they love it. And so um, I think they'll be really good. They're very respectful, and they think about things, um, and they're not just into... Visual game aids and all this stuff they're more in tune. That's good. Yeah, so I have hope for them.
0: Are you going to take them diving?
2: Uh, When their mother lets me. (laughs) (laughs) Do they want to go? Jackson does. Yes. Yes, he does.
0: How about you Scott? What do you think in terms of all the changes you've seen and some of the big issues we're facing? What are your thoughts for communicating
2: about? Well
1: um, we, we I guess the, the big change I'm seeing at the Farallons right now that um, was kind of unexpected but should have seen it coming is the a number of fur seals that are there which um, it's increasing exponentially right now and back in the day when the fur sealers were out there there was 50,000 of them so if the number were to reach those kind of numbers again they'd outnumber any of the other seals or sea lions so they might become a major prey item Right now what we see is we see more of them on the water than we've ever seen, adults and juveniles, and they sit at the surface and act like uh, the other (laughs) seals and sea lions don't. So they're either going to get attacked and spit out or attacked and eaten, and they'll become a new prey source. I don't know, but the dynamic is going to change in some way because there's a lot of them, and and we're seeing more and more all the time. So that's kind of like the biggest change I see, and the less traffic out there is uh, better for that place because, like Ron said, it is small. You know, you could take well, East Landings the size of maybe, uh, you know, downtown Inverness, which isn't very big, you know. So anyway, you got um, a very small place, so it's easily overly impacted. It's good that people can still go there, though, and see a place and experience it. Um, but I think the main thing that's happening in the world, and especially in California and in the oceans, is there's just more people. And more people equals more problems, and it's, you know, like... We all love the ocean and, and experience it and stuff like that, but it doesn't take much to mess it up. So, um, I don't know, it's great for all these different organizations that are looking out for it. And um I don't know, if people can treat it like their backyard <laughs> because it is, um, then, you know, look at your yard and are you taking care of your yard or is it trashed? And that's what we need to do,
0: to the ocean. Yeah. Keep it clean. Excellent you have a story that you're holding on to that you haven't shared yet? told
2: more than he usually does. <laughs> Just got to pry him out. Well, I always have a story I'm not going to tell. <laughs> but, no, I, uh, it's an interesting process. I mean, I'm still always learning, and that's what I, that's good. Um, and so, um, I'm always learning something, and, uh, I'm always kind of in awe, and I think that's why, um, I enjoy it so much, is that, uh, I don't know that much. It's very little what I know. And um, uh, so I, I like staying that way. Teachable, uh, I like to learn. I don't want to, a lot of times, I don't want to know too much. Luckily it's not ignorance is bliss because I lived that way for a long time. But I, um, uh, I enjoy, like with uh, Scott and the other researchers, um, they have integrity in what they do. I've seen them over the years and i uh, i really appreciate that uh when i was urchin diving we had researchers and s- stuff involved with fishing game some of them had an agenda so i had a little bitter taste some of them i'm not saying all of them uh, just some of them and uh and being around scott and um uh, and the other guys i i you know it's renewed my faith in how they approach you know their research and so uh so it's been very enjoyable for me. And then, you know, meeting the people with the sanctuary and uh and there's a lot of passionate people that give a lot of time. Uh and uh and I'm glad some of the changes came because it is a, a very delicate ecosystem. It's not a big area, but we got something really great here and um and I'm glad to see that there is a, a change for the better. Yeah.
0: That's wonderful. What are the t- names of the two films that you're in that people can see online?
2: Devil's Teeth, not the book. Um,
0: <laughs> the video. The, the video, video of
2: the show. Ten-minute video. Avoid uh, the, the book. Sanctuary in the Sea. Sanctuary in the Sea. And then The Great, Great White, White Highway. Great White Highway is for, say, or you can...
1: I, I think it's online.
2: Yeah. Is it I, online now? You Google it.
1: You know, it comes up as some YouTube file, I'm pretty sure. Oh, it does? Yeah, Okay. Or if well, if you can't find it that way, you should be able to find it. You know, everything's on the computer, right?
0: Well, thanks, guys, very much for chatting a little bit. It's so nice to hear these stories because this is a place that so few people get to experience and understand. It's really hard to let people know about how amazing it is, and you have a really unique experience that nobody else has, so...
2: Well, in this area, though, we're lucky. I mean, so all the surfers and divers and everybody that, you know, enjoy this area, you know, they don't... If you live here, you still enjoy it because even if you're not a water person, you're around it. And um, and it's just another part, you know, because with all the, uh, you know, the parkland and, and this whole setting, uh, you know, we're lucky. You know, there's a lot here. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's a lot to take care of, too.
2: Yep, very lucky.
0: Been listening to Ocean Currents, listening to an interview with Ron Elliott and Scott Anderson, two local shark enthusiasts visiting the area to uh, research and enjoy the white sharks that we have here, which not many people do. Very, very interesting folks and i just wanted to bring attention that it is october and that's why we we focused on sharks this month because this is the annual time of year that the white sharks return to this region and so for those of us that enjoy enjoy playing in the ocean it's just i think good to remind ourselves to be aware and just a couple tips in terms of some smart things to do and that would be to not swim alone Um, It's nice to have a buddy on the beach keeping an eye on you and also just having in the water. But to avoid places with lots of seals in the water, that is often a a case of mistaken identity when sharks interact with humans in in ways that are not necessarily pleasurable. Making sure that you are not near fishing boats where there might be fish or birds bait in the water, especially if there's birds or diving in the water, there might be a lot of food under the water, and being alert for subtle cues or activity in the environment. These are all just common sense things for all of us ocean lovers to allow us to safely enjoy the ocean because, as Ron was saying earlier, it's so random and you can't predict it, so we just need to be aware. And the chances are extremely low, very, very extremely low. But they're not entirely absent. And so actually, I'm going to have another interview in a couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to have an interview with Jonathan Cathrine, who was 16 years old at the time. He had an attack from a white shark um, at Stinson Beach and survived and has really made a very productive um, Future as a result of that experience, it really changed his life, and he's a really strong defender of the importance of sharks in the ecosystem. And he's going to be on the show during a very special episode of Ocean Currents during the pledge drive. So tune in then if you can, October twenty first. Ocean Currents. We are the first Monday of every month, and you can hear all the past episodes online at CordellBank.noaa.gov. All the episodes are there, as well as through a podcast in iTunes. And I love hearing from listeners, so if you have a chance to want to hear, share what you think about the show or have ideas for future topics, please do email me, S T O C K at noaa.gov, and I'd, I'd love to hear from your, my listeners. Um, I just wanted to follow up, too. There are three films that Scott and Ron talked about online, and I really they're really great films if you have a chance to get online and check them out. Great White Highway is online on YouTube. And I couldn't figure out if there's a fee for it or not, because I believe it's through the the Discovery Channel, but it is online. And Sanctuary in the Sea is a wonderful film that is done by Bob Talbot, and Ron is actually the main character of the film. It's about a 25-minute film, and it talks about his entire life as someone who has enjoyed the Farallon Islands and seen such amazing things underwater. And you see some of his video footage in there, so a really interesting one to check out. And also The Devil's Teeth. Um, This is another one on YouTube that you can all check out online to see some of Ron Elliott's video footage and and see what he sees underwater. Such an incredible place out there in the Gulf of the Farallones. So thanks again for tuning in today to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I'll be back next month, but I'll also be back October 21st for a very special show during the Pledge Drive talking with Jonathan Cathrine. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.